Uh, I think one of the great reasons children exist in the world is to give preachers illustrations. And Margaret this year loved... I could not have foreseen the level of love she would have for Dr. Seuss's The Grinch. I could not fathom the number of times that I was going to watch the first 15 minutes of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That was about all she could focus on um, until she graduated to the first 30 minutes. And so we've seen that roughly 200 times in the last month. Um, and every time we try and resume the movie from where she left off, she goes, no, start over. And so we started over. But one of the books that she got this year was a kind of a spinoff of the, the newest Grinch movie that came out. And it's called The Grinch is Coming to Town. And you sit down to read it. And Is, is there anybody in here who is not familiar with Dr. Seuss's The Grinch? Like, I mean, the, the, the original Grinch. You know, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. That one. Yeah, you know. The, the, the guy who has just the unearthly low voice who sings it. Anyway, um, the, everybody remembers that, you know, the, the Grinch is, you know, maybe his shoes were too tight or maybe his head wasn't screwed on straight. But probably the, the, the biggest reason of all was that the Grinch's heart was two sizes too small that everybody remembers that the end of the story he's getting ready to throw the presents over the mountaintop and then he hears you know the who's singing down bottom and his heart grows three sizes that day and he lifts the presents up and brings them back down mount crumpet and christmas is great and he's somehow not prosecuted for grand larceny but anyway you expect that's where the book is going to lead but this book, no, it just the, 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 it's this little tiny book with the little buttons you push that make the sounds. And the Grinch comes up with the plan that he's going to steal Christmas. And it's a little kid's book that's meant to be a tie to the movie. So it's only like four pages long. The book ends with him making the plan that he's going to come to town and steal Christmas. And then you turn the page and it's the back cover. And I'm like, where's the rest of the... Where's the rest of the story? This is the reason that we enjoy the Grinch story is that you, you've got this mean garlic in your soul. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole guy at the beginning of the story. And then by the end, he's carving rare who roast beast and singing Merry Christmas because his heart has grown and he's loved. That there's the, the downside and there's the upside. There's the negative, there's the positive. And that's the reason we like it, that you see both sides of it. Well, have you ever noticed that when we talk about the judgment of God, we only ever talk about it as though it's a negative? Have you ever thought about that? That that when people call God judge, we're so quick to say, well, yes, God is the judge, but He's not judgy. Because we interpret judgment as it's always a negative. That there's never anything good about God judging. Scripture doesn't present it that way. That when God judges, yes, absolutely, there is a negative side of God's judgment. And when I say negative, I don't mean bad. 
Okay, God, there's not a single attribute of God that is bad. But there are attributes of God that produce unenjoyable situations. And judgment can produce an unenjoyable situation if you find yourself on the wrong side of it. Right? That's why I stand up here when I preach about the judgment of God. I implore you, come to Christ so you don't find yourself on the wrong side of God's judgment. But... There is a good side of God's judgment too. That when God judges, He defeats His enemies, but by doing that, He provides and procures victory for His people. The reason that Satan's sin and death will finally be gone is because of God's judgment. He will judge them and eliminate Satan's sin and death so that his people don't have to put up with that mess anymore. So see, God's judgment has a positive side. uh, Revelation chapter 15 is all about God's judgment, but it is presented as a celebratory occasion. That God is about to get ready to judge the world and all of heaven is up cheering and clapping and singing and waving pom-poms and shooting fireworks. It's, It's a party because God is about to enter judgment. So I want us to see if Scripture, if Scripture can celebrate the judgment of God while at the same time mourning those whom it negatively affects, we should be able to do both at the same time as well. I should be able to celebrate that the judgment of God provides me with a new world, while at the same time, cautioning and warning, make sure you're over here instead of over here, because it's coming either way. So stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read all of Genesis. I almost said Genesis. Y'all can tell where my mind is. Revelation chapter 15. And you're like, he's going to preach a whole chapter. Yes, I am, because it's not long. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Father, I pray that You would help us to look forward to the deliverance You will provide us through Your judgment one day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I want us to look at three 
three attributes of God as he's carrying out judgment today. And the first is that God is, I couldn't come up with a better word for this. Not and keep my, not and keep my little point structure. God is emancipatory in judgment. That's your SAT prep word for the day. Um, emancipatory. Um, emancipation proclamation. Do y'all remember that from American history? That was when President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that in all states currently under rebellion, slavery was to be deemed null and void for all men, women, and children that were slaves in those states, that if they were to escape to a northern state or if a northern, if a Union army were to come in and take over, then they were not to recognize the slave status of any slave that they came across. That former slaves were allowed to join the military. They were allowed to own businesses. They were allowed to work for wages. They were allowed to do... He basically declared that anywhere the un, of the, the Confederacy that the Union Army went in, uh, slavery was done. That they were not to recognize it. And if a slave escaped from a slave state into a Union state, that their slavery status was not to be recognized, they were not to be returned, that they were free. They had been emancipated. God is emancipatory in judgment. He frees His people when He judges. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 15. John says, I saw another sign. Okay, so stop. Right there. Uh, When we started going through the book of Revelation, I told you that Revelation can be difficult to, to preach, to study, to read, because you're constantly on your toes trying to figure out what's literal and what's figurative. And sometimes it makes a big difference. Okay, this is one of those times where it makes a big difference. Because we've seen sign before. A few chapters ago, we saw a sign that very clearly we said was in chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. That whole chapter alternates between literal and figurative. The woman and the beast. So when you see sign, you almost immediately think, oh, this is figurative. This is symbolic. Well... To complicate matters even more, it doesn't have to be. John says it's a sign. The Greek word is the word um, simeon. I want to make sure I pronounce that right. Simeon. It can mean sign, indicator, or miracle. Though it is often figurative, it isn't always the way it's used. We just came through the Christmas season, right? Luke chapter 2. The angel tells the shepherds, Today in the city of David, a Savior is born to you, Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if sign always means something figurative, we just wasted about a month. Right? Because if sign always means figurative, that means there wasn't literally a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. And I'm kind of staking my soul on the fact that there was literally a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay? So this word doesn't always mean figurative. Sometimes it can mean indicator. It can mean you have been told something 
And so now to confirm what God has told you, he is giving you a sign, an indicator that what he has told you is about to come to pass. Uh, This is the way it's used a lot in the New Testament as well. Um, If you go and look in John chapter 2 and John chapter 6, I'll even, I'll flip over to John chapter 6. I didn't put it in my handout, but it's too good of an explanation. In John chapter 6, Jesus has been preaching, and in verse uh, 29 of chapter 6, the people actually, uh, Jesus says, this is, the, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. The people have asked them, what should we do that we do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent, namely Himself. And the people respond to Him and say, What sign, Simeon, will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, they're saying, okay, you're telling us that you are the bread from heaven. You're you're, you're telling us that the work of God is to believe in you. So what are you going to do to convince us to follow you? Because Moses convinced our ancestors to follow him in the wilderness by giving manna. So if he fed them miraculously, what miracle, what sign, what Simeon in John 6 are you going to do to convince us to follow you? They're saying we need an indicator. We need something that you could do to convince us that your word is correct. So our task in this particular passage is to figure out if this is a figurative sign like we saw in Revelation 12, or if this is a confirmatory sign of some prior word that God has spoken. So let's just keep reading and see if we can figure out what this is. So in Revelation 15, it says this, this is the sign. And, it's, and John said it's great and marvelous, by the way. He says, I saw seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So, some of my veteran readers of the Bible in here. When you hear the word plagues and a number, where does your mind immediately go? Egypt. You hear the word plagues and you hear a number and you think, okay, this is a call back to the Exodus. You are correct. This is a call back to the Exodus. And we see that in these plagues, the wrath of God is complete. Now, complete... The idea is it's, it's finished. That there's none left. So, <clears throat> has God ever said in the Bible He is going to finally, ultimately judge and eradicate evil and bring His people into a world without it? Has He ever promised that? So, What do you think the reaction is going to be from God's people when finally the angels holding the rest of God's wrath walk out of the temple, 
carrying the bowls of the completeness of God's wrath. And God's people all see them walk out. They all know what's in these bowls. And they hear God crack His knuckles and say, alright, it's time for the end of it, it to come. It's time for death to be dealt with. It's time for sin to be dealt with. It's time for sickness to be dealt with. It's time for slavery to be dealt with. It's time for Satan to be dealt with. It's time for earth's rebellion to be dealt with. I have had enough. It's time. Heaven breaks out in a party. That's why this sign is great and marvelous. Because this is God's character finally coming to bear. The sign is great and marvelous because God's promise that He is going to deal with sin ultimate and finally up to this point has been unfulfilled. Now, Wait a minute, I thought Jesus dealt with sin on the cross. Yes, from a litigation point of view, He has. That our sin has been dealt with. Our sin, if you are a Christian, has been punished, atoned for, covered, thrown to the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness. That God, when He looks at a Christian, no longer sees their sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. In that sense, your sin has been dealt with. But when you turn on your television, do you see sin? When you walk out your door, do you see sin? When you stand up and feel pain in your physical body, do you feel sin? The effects of it? When you see uh, or, or experience things in this world that make you say, it ought not be like that, you feel the pain, the weight, the pressure of sin. It's still here. It's still present in this world. We're free from its penalty, but we're not free from its power or presence yet. That John says this is a great marvelous sign because God's not just dealing with its penalty anymore. He's dealing with its power and its presence. It's time for it to go. <clears throat> And then, John sees in verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass. He doesn't say it is glass. He says it's like glass, mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, his image, and his mark. So these are all believers. And over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having hearts of God. This is significant, that they're standing on the sea. I told Emily, I was so excited about this. I'm going to do something in this sermon I've never done. Are y'all ready? I want you to grab your bulletin and find somewhere on it that's blank. Or maybe grab your handout and flip it over on the back. We're going to have art class. You're going to draw. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay, so y'all probably think this is silly, but I promise I have a point. So think back in your mind... If you remember Genesis, so God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form of void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And then there was light. And then so you've got light, but then you've got you know, these, these, these waters. And it says He divides the waters where from the waters where. He says He divides the waters below from the waters above. He places a firmament between the two, and He calls that sky. Right? So I want you to draw two parallel lines. Put some room between them. 
Okay? And then he pushes the water out of the way and groups and makes the dry land appear. Right? So draw yourself kind of a mountain. Do it kind of like a triangle on your bottom line. Don't draw it on the top line. Okay? <clears throat> and so the top of this mountain, we, we talked about a few weeks ago, that's where God put Eden. And heaven kind of came to meet earth right there. So draw yourself kind of a little arch from your top line covering the top of your mountain. That's where man met with God. Okay? Do you see all this? So you should have two lines with a little mountain coming up on your bottom one and a little dip where that top line comes and meets the top of the mountain, right? This is the ancient conception of how spiritually the world is laid out. This is why when you read Jonah, when he's swallowed by the fish and he's afraid he's going to die, he says, my soul is going to go down through the depths to the bars of the foundations of the earth. That to them, the sea is not just the ocean that you look out and see. It's this water that is below the creation that we experience. It's these unfathomable depths. But where is there also a sea? It's the boundary between heaven and earth, isn't it? Look at your little diagram. Say, well, wait a minute. I've never seen the waters above. I've only seen the waters below. Aha, but have you ever seen God either? Just because you haven't seen that sea doesn't mean it's there. Heaven has a glassy sea as its boundary between there and here. Well, Josh, I've never, I don't know about all this. Well, this is not on your handout either, but I'm going to flip back here to Psalms, or actually just Psalm 148. Do, 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 do. I have several of these. I just Anytime I come across something that's, that might be new like this, I want to make sure you all know I'm not making it up. Psalm 148.4 Praise Him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. What about that? What about Psalm 104? Psalm 104 verse 3 He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. Huh. What about Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26? Probably the most significant one. Say, wait a minute. I didn't, this, is, this, is, this is new. Ezekiel 1, verse 26. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne with a likeness with the man with the appearance of a man high above it. That there is a there there's oh, excuse me, verse 22, the likeness of a firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of awesome crystal stretched out over their heads, and under the firmament of their wings spread out straight, each one towards another. So they're carrying the throne of God. But what's between them and the throne? This crystal water sea-like thing that there is this barrier between those of us down here 
in God that is very much like a sea that is crystal or glass mingled with fire or sapphire stone, that there is a sea between God's people and where He wants them to go. Does this sound familiar? Can you think of another story in Scripture where God had His people who were captive in a land under a wicked king and he had somewhere he wanted to bring them, but what did they have to cross to get to the land he wanted them in? A sea. And there's no way they're crossing this sea and getting away from this wicked king if God doesn't bring them across it, is there? They're butted up against it. And they even go to Moses and say, Did you bring us out here that there weren't enough graves in Egypt? There's no way for us to cross this boundary. Sure, God may want us over there, but right now we're stuck over here with Pharaoh, and unless he does something miraculous to get us across this boundary, we're going to die over here in captivity and never get to be with him over there. On the near side of this sea is slavery and death. On the far side is life and freedom. God's judgment is presented as scary, but that presentation leaves out the wonderful positive aspect of it that God's judgment results in the freedom of His people. That if Pharaoh doesn't go down, Israel's not free. If that army doesn't get destroyed... They will continue pursuing them to the ends of the earth. If y'all haven't figured it out by now in this book, Satan doesn't quit. As long as he's there, he wants us dead. As long as he's there, he's going to pursue us. Until he is ultimate, finally done. It's not over. These saints in Revelation 15 are in heaven because God brought them across the sea. He brought them across that boundary into His domain. And in doing so, He brought them out of the domain of the wicked king who wanted to hold them in slavery forever. It's not a coincidence that it says these saints have victory over the beast. Well, who did Israel have victory over? Pharaoh! Who gave these saints victory over the beast? God. Who gave Israel victory over Pharaoh? God. Moses was God's chosen leader to bring them out of Egypt. Jesus is God's chosen leader to bring us out of Satan's domain. It's the same story, just told again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2, 1-3, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That if you don't know Jesus... I promise you, you may not think you are, but you are a slave to a king much worse than Pharaoh. 
That the same way the Israelites were building Pharaoh's kingdom, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you are at work building Satan's. You're a slave. You can't help but to do it. But fortunately, the same way that God sent Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, God sent Jesus to lead you out of your slavery right now. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love across the crystal sea. There has been another great crossing. Not just that first one. That God's children should look forward to His judgment because when it's complete, they'll truly be free. Can you imagine a world where you haven't even thought about sin in 10,000 years? You forgot it was a thing? See, we can't even fathom it. That's because as a slave, you can't envision freedom. You've never experienced it. You don't even know what it is. One day... There's a reason to look forward to the judgment of God. Because as a, as a Christian, judgment's not aimed at us. Judgment's aimed at our captors. It's aimed at Satan. It's aimed at sin. It's aimed at death. So God's emancipatory in judgment. And then second, God's victorious in judgment. Look at verse 3. It says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Great and marvelous are your works, <clears throat> Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord God, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now it says they sing two songs, but how many songs do you see here? You only see one, right? So where's the second song? There's not one. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are the same song. Because it's the same story. Well, let's go back and look at what the song of Moses actually is. Exodus 15. This is a song that would have been sung for thousands of years by the Jews memorializing this. Memorializing the crossing. Moses says, uh, Moses and the children of Israel sang this, this is Exodus 15, sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army He has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of Your excellence, You have overthrown those who rose against You. You have sent forth Your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of Your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The 
flood stood upright like a heap, the depths congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will desire, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you've redeemed. And you've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be still as a stone till your people pass over, Lord, till your people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you've made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. What part of that can't we sing? This is the same song. And the people in heaven are singing this because they said the very same sea that you parted to bring us through is the destruction of our enemies. If you think back to the story of the Exodus of the great Red Sea crossing in Exodus, it's in 14, I'm not going to read it. God's already shown himself in Exodus 14 to be supreme not only to Pharaoh but all the other Egyptian gods by the the first plagues. In Exodus, culminating in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And so Pharaoh lets them go. But after he lets them go, and they're already out walking toward the Red Sea, Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his servants turn and they decide, "Eh, I don't know. I kind of liked having them here. I want to go get them and bring them back. So they assemble the military, and not just any military, he gets 600 of his best men, and they go after Israel to bring them back. And as Pharaoh closes in, God bars the way by slamming down the pillar of cloud that he's been guiding them with in between them and Israel. And overnight it becomes the cloud of fire so that Pharaoh and his military can't pass. And the whole time this is happening, God tells Moses to stretch out your hand, your staff over the Red Sea. And it says a strong wind blows this Red Sea just, that's what he said, the blast of your nostrils and it stands up like a wall. On the right and the left. And if I'm in Israel, by the time I wake, wake up from fainting, I start walking. <clears throat> because I see the water standing up this way. So I'm walking through the Red Sea. Well, about the time Israel gets ready to come out the other end, God says, hey Moses, get ready. And he lifts the cloud and the fire so that Pharaoh and his chariots see, oh look, God who seems to have done everything supernaturally possible to defeat us and let them go, now miraculously seems to be on our side and is giving us a way to chase them. Let's run full speed in between these giant supernaturally suspended walls of water and take back the people that this God has been protecting the whole time. That seems logical. And rushes into... By the way, y'all, Satan is not unintelligent. He's just dumb. Okay? When has he ever won? And yet he continually tries. Okay? So Pharaoh and his military run into this dry seabed 
thinking they're going to take Israel back. And God says, all right, Moses, stretch your staff back out. And he stretches it back out. And the very sea that led to Israel's freedom was death for Pharaoh and his military. Now, think about this. When Satan rebelled, he was cast where? Out of where? Heaven. Him and all his angels. Him and everybody who served him. Well, if the boundary between heaven and earth is this glassy sea, where did God cast Satan and his generals? Into the sea. Into the depths. Down here. But, where did God bring His people here in Revelation? Across the sea. Into His domain. He's cast Satan into the depths, and He's about to cast him even farther down. But God's people have been brought through the sea into His domain that they now live in His tabernacle. At the end of the Song of Moses, it says, you've brought us into your tabernacle, into your holy dwelling. Well, He hadn't done that yet. He brought them into the promised land. They're singing about something that's thousands of years into the future when this song is actually fulfilled and we're brought into the presence of God that the song of Moses is actually the song of the Lamb. This has always been true. In the same way that God's chosen servant led Israel through the Red Sea into the new land of freedom from Pharaoh and fellowship with Him, Jesus leads His people across the boundary of the glassy sea into heaven and stand in the throne room of God. Pharaoh was cast into the sea with his armies. Satan was cast through the sea and is about to be defeated with his. The song is coming true, which is why heaven is celebrating. Satan's about to get embarrassed. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, that word means armies, of wickedness in the heavenly places, that we are at war with an enemy much worse than Pharaoh and much more dangerous than his chariots. And they will pursue us to the ends of the earth. Satan wants you dead and in hell. He wants you to be oblivious of the fact that this war is raging around you. There's a scene, and I know some of y'all don't care about this. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. You should see it if you haven't. There's a scene in the third Lord of the Rings movie. Some of y'all are giggling. Some of y'all are like, I've never seen that. Go home, watch it. Um, There are two characters in it. One is a king. One of them should be. And the king doesn't want to lead his people to war. And he looks at this one character. Know him as Strider, Aragorn in the movie. He says, I do not know that I want open war. And Aragorn looks at him and says, well, open war is upon you, whether you want it or not. The question is, what are you going to do? Say, well, I don't know that I want to be in this spiritual warfare. I don't know that I want to get... Open war is upon you, whether you would have it or not. And God doesn't tell you to go beat Satan up. 
By the way, Jesus doesn't ever instruct you to go find demons and go battle with them. What does He tell you to do? Put on the armor and stand. Put it on and stand. Who is it that wins the victory? Him. The Song of Moses says, He is a warrior. He is our general. He is our king. Most kings ride out at the back of the military to protect themselves so that their army can fight in front of them. But anytime in Revelation you see Jesus ride out with His people, where is He? He's at the front. Because He's the only one that's going to do any damage. Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, this is all about what Jesus did. And then finally in 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That part of what God is doing in this judgment is not just delivering you, it is destroying every part of Satan's army that has ever so much as thought about laying a finger on you. Do you know that every demonic force, every demonic attack, every demonic temptation, every demonic curse, word, thought, whatever, against you, against God's people, Jesus takes very, very personally. I don't know about y'all, But when my big brother Jesus shows up, the bully about to get thrown out the playground. We've seen the scenes in TV shows where there's this little shrimpy kid on the playground and the bully always picks on him. But then one day, you, the, kid, the, the shrimpy kid finally bows up and says, I'm ready to go. And the bully runs off and the little shrimpy kid thinks it's because he looks tough all of a sudden. And he doesn't know that his 18-year-old big brother's standing behind him. Yeah, it's like at this final moment, at this end of history, the church is finally like, all right, I'm going to stand. And Jesus goes, yeah, you are. And the horse and his riders get thrown into the sea. That God's people get to sing victoriously because not only are they free, they win. We win. God's children should look forward to judgment because when it's complete, Satan and his forces will finally be gone, drowned, sunk like lead in the bottom of the sea. Never to be heard from, never to be seen again. Isn't that good? But as a way of encouragement for the gospel, if you don't line up with Jesus, guess whose jersey you're wearing? You're on Satan's team. Judgment is very good for God's people. It's very bad for His enemies. And then finally, chillingly, God is unstoppable in His judgment. Verse 5, After these things I looked, 
And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven gold bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Throughout Scripture, the temple is presented as a place where God dwells in a unique way. It's not to say that God dwells at the temple at expense of Him dwelling everywhere else. That doesn't mean that when God's in the temple, He's not you know, two blocks down the road or He's not across the world. God's very clearly omnipresent. That's one of his attributes as God. But God, in some unique way, dwells in the temple differently. And the temple shown in heaven in the book of Revelation is the real temple. It's the temple which the earthly temple is just a copy. The temple is where God's throne room is. And we see this in the book of Revelation, and, and the, the one shadow of a temple that we've experienced on earth, the first one, the best one, Solomon's temple, when Solomon dedicates it in 1 Kings 8, verses 22 through 53, I, I made a note here, it said read all of it, I'm going to make an amendment and not. Solomon gives this long dedication where he prays for God to hear his people. Wherever they are, under whatever circumstances, when they pray to your temple here, hear them and forgive. If they're sick, heal. If they're in captivity, free. If they're uh, hurt, heal. You know, just hear us when we pray to your temple. Hear us when we pray to you where you sit in your temple. Hear and respond. And God fills the temple, and it's it's this wonderful moment. Where God says, I am going to listen when you pray to me here. It's beautiful. But something scary happens here. That the angels come out bearing the bowls of wrath. And God fills His temple with His smoke, power, and glory. So that He cannot be approached while judgment is being poured out. Now earlier, when the angel offered incense to God, he brings it into the temple, right? The incense, earlier in Revelation, is the prayers of the saints. He brings it into God's heavenly temple and offers it to God. He brings the prayers to Him in the temple. When God fills this temple with His smoke and His glory and His power, no one can come in. What does this mean? God is not accepting any prayers for Him to hold off any longer. He has closed the door and said, I'll come out when I'm done. You can pray all you want. You can beg all you want. You can plead all you want. But the message is not going to get delivered. Now Josh, I don't know. That makes me uncomfortable that you're saying God won't listen. Well, I'm only saying what He said. Proverbs 1, 28-32 Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. 
because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That God effectively at the end of Revelation 15 says, I have spent thousands of years, humanity, on loving you, on pleading with you, on guiding you, on being patient with you, on sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and my son and apostle and apostle and apostle and apostle. I sent my Holy Spirit into this earth to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. I let you invent things like television and satellite and radio and the internet so that there is no one on the face of the earth right now who does not have better access to the gospel than anyone in the history of the world. At this point, there have been angels flying through heaven proclaiming the gospel to everyone who's on earth. There have been supernaturally protected witnesses standing in the middle of Jerusalem preaching the gospel for three and a half years and people are still not listening and God says enough. Give us more time. No. Be patient. I have been. Have mercy. I did. And like he said to Moses on Sinai, now depart from me and let my wrath burn hot against them and consume them. Well, Josh, I thought you said there was going to be a positive side to this. There is. How many of y'all wearing a wedding ring? Shing! This thing right here is my papa's. Do you know why there's not very much impurity in this ring? Because at some time in its history, the gold that was in this ring before being fashioned into this ring was put into a furnace. And the fire was cranked up really, 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 really hot. And everything, except for the things that make it 14 instead of 24, was burned out of it. All the impurity, all the dirt, all the nastiness, all the dross was gone. Because if you get the fire hot enough, the only thing left is the good. And you get to enjoy it. And it lasts. If you're a Christian, man, there's nothing better than God finally pouring His wrath out because that means the only thing left will be the good that He always intended this world to be. There's nothing left but to be with God and enjoy Him forever. And I can't think of a better world than that. But for the dross to be gotten rid of, for the gold to be pure, the flame's got to burn hot. It's got to happen. There's no way around it. And as God's children, we shouldn't shy away from it. 
You do know that when you pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, you're praying for God to bring judgment. Because when Jesus comes back to this world again, it's not to be patient. It's to take over. And just as a side note, before I give the invitation, after the death of the firstborn, God leads Israel to the Red Sea and parts it so that Pharaoh and his armies can run into it to their own death, right? You know what the last plague is? Parting of waters so that the beast and his armies can make their way to the valley of Armageddon so that Pharaoh can run his military into being defeated by God one last time. That's the same story, again, that God's judgment will prevail. He will free you. He will win for you. And He will lead you into a world where there is nothing left but good in Himself, as if the two things were separate. Do you want to live in that world? Do you want to be on this side of the sea and not at the bottom of it? You can have that. You can be part of the crowd singing victoriously in the throne room of God. All you've got to do is follow the leader that he sent you. Follow the king that he sent you. His name is Jesus. He made a way through the sea for you. And he made it with his own blood. So if you want to give your life to Christ, if you want to be saved, man, there's no better time than the present. I'd love to talk with you about that. Mark and Joyce are going to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. You can come down this aisle and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you about giving my life to Christ. Um, I'm not going to have the whole conversation with you here. I'm not going to have it with you in front of the church. That's just a way for you to identify, hey, I'd like to sit down and talk with you later. Some folks like to walk down the aisle and feel like it's a, it's a way to identify with Christ. By no means is that a scriptural requirement. You can just fill out the guest card on your bulletin right there and say, Pastor, I would like to talk with you about giving my life to Christ later. Follow up with me after church or sometime this week. I'd love to do that. Or if you miss both of those and the Holy Spirit just won't leave you alone because that's what I'm about to pray for him to do is harass him until you answer <laughs> Then I'm going to be standing at the back door and you can say, Preacher, I just completely miss the first two opportunities, but I don't want to leave this building because God's on me. And I'm going to say, well, good. Let's talk. Um, you got several different opportunities to respond. I want you to, to avail yourself of one of them. I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being a God who parted the waters that are the boundary between heaven and earth and have invited us to come and live forevermore in your presence. Lord, thank you for being the God who promises one day Satan, sin, and death are going to be thrown into the bottom, not just of the sea, but Satan, sin, and death are going to be thrown into a lake of fire never to be heard from again. That we will enjoy eternity with you in your presence, experiencing life the way you always meant it to be, in perfect fellowship and relationship with you. But we can only have that if we come to it through the blood of your Son, Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for that blood. We thank you for that way in. We thank you for the parting of that crystal sea at the hand of one greater than Moses. But, Lord, I pray for those today who don't know you. I pray that you work in their hearts and you call them to salvation. 
to be part of your people so that they can be there with us as well. Lord, we love you and ask that you bless and grow this church for your glory and our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.